Father of mercy, thank you for your son Jesus Christ who sits enthroned as we just sang about in Psalm 2. The question is, why do the nations rage? The people's plot in vain. He sits enthroned and no plot can dethrone him. And that is our hope this morning. We pray that we could see that hope anew this morning in our text. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Maybe you are anticipating the 2020 Summer Olympics like I am, which are set to begin in July in Tokyo. Now, that's the fourth time that Japan has hosted the Olympics, but it's the first time since the terrible disaster that hit the region of Fukushima in March of 2011. That's when a horrible earthquake hit that area, that region, followed by a tsunami, which claimed nearly 20,000 lives. In fact, when that tsunami hit the, the shore, it hit a nuclear power plant, which exploded like a bomb, releasing a massive cloud of radioactive particles, forced the government to evacuate over 80,000 people from that area. They declared that area uninhabitable uh, for human occupation. But hope came just two and a half years later. September of 2013, it came in the form of an announcement from the International Olympic Committee. The games would be in Japan in 2020. And when the region was awarded those games, the nation celebrated and the leaders saw it as a, an opportunity, an opportunity to rebuild that area, Fukushima. They said the games would show the world that they had healed and that they were whole. In fact, they're calling these Olympics the Reconstruction Olympics. And with the Olympics approaching, thousands of nuclear refugees are going back home because their government has made it clear to them that it's safe to live there. Once again, everything has been scrubbed clean of radiation. It's as if the tsunami has been reversed. One problem with this story. Some nuclear researchers are saying it's all propaganda. There's been no real cleanup. These researchers have measured the area for levels of radiation, and they're saying most of the area isn't remotely fit for human habitation. If you go back there, cancer and leukemia will rise a thousandfold. The area is littered with pockets of extreme radioactivity. Well, I'm not sure there's ever been a disaster that better conveys, metaphorically speaking, the effects of sin than Japan's threefold tragedy in 2011. Picture the earthquake, that, that one event 
is an apt picture of Adam's sin. Adam rebels against God. He sins against God, and that sets off a firestorm of devastation. And, and now picture in your mind a, a film clip of an ocean forming as a wall and rolling on top of, of towns and villages and, and consuming everything in its past. That's a fitting image of the curse that fell on creation after Adam's sin, which left nothing untouched. Inanimate creation, the animal world, the Imago Dei, nothing untouched by the curse on sin. And from that curse of sin and guilt comes the nuclear explosions of, of sin that we commit as guilty and polluted sinners in rebellion to our Lord and in rebellion to his Christ, our King. Now, imagine playing a video of that trifold tragedy that happened in Japan. Imagine playing that video in reverse. All destruction being reversed, except when the reversal comes, things will be qualitatively superior and even more glorious than before the tragedy. Unlike the alleged propaganda that's taking place with the Japanese government that is more concerned evidently with appearances than the real restoration of things, this reversal will be comprehensively effective. Well, that's the promise that God gives us. That's the promise of the new creation the new heavens and the new earth that will come about through his great king. And the Old Testament pictures that. The Old Testament foreshadows that. The Old Testament anticipates that reality, that day. And there's no greater picture perhaps in the Old Testament than King David, the one from the tribe of Judah. Last week we saw that now finally, after the promises were made, the promise was made many years earlier. All 12 tribes have united under the reign, the rule, the throne of King David. They submit to him. And then he goes and he takes Jerusalem, defeating the enemies of God. And then he, he builds his city. David was reminding the nation of Israel in all of that, who's been distracted? Who's been distracted by division? Who, who's been distracted by a seven-plus-year civil war that its real struggle is against the enemies of God rather than the, their fellow covenant family? We need to be reminded of that every week, don't we? And whether that lesson has sunk in with the Israelites the Philistines were certainly aware of what was going on, and they are now awakened from their slumber. That's what we see starting in verse 17, act one, scene one. It's like a drama, but it's a true drama. What the Philistines did 
in response to the enthroned king. Look with me in verse 17. When all the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it, went down to the stronghold. This is the first time, the first battle with the Philistines since 1 Samuel 31 at Gilgal. What happened there? In 1 Samuel 31, Saul was killed. Israel's king was killed. His three sons, three of his sons were killed. And, and 1 Samuel 31, 7 says that, that the Philistines inhabited much of the northern territory. So they, are, they have taken dominion in the land of promise. That's seven years ago. And as long as David was having to deal with intramural squabbles, civil war, the Philistines dwelled securely. That's why we haven't heard about them. Because the people have been turned on themselves. They're no threat to the enemy. And so they just continued to dwell in territory that belonged to Israel. But now the news of David's enthronement is heard by the Philistines. This is gospel news. It's, it's gospel in seed form because we know the, the ultimate king will come from the line of David. And the gospel was this. David from the tribe of Judah sits enthroned as king. Of course, it's only good news for those who welcome it. For the Philistines and for those like the Philistines who reject that, it's horrifying news because the implications we could speak a week on. The true king sits enthroned. The implications are massive. That is horrifying news for those who reject his rule. Last thing they want is the people of God united under the true king. That's a dangerous weapon. Now the focus for the Philistines become eliminating David. As a result, they notice they went up in full force to search for him. Now that verb search is found numerous times as Saul is searching for David. Same song, different verse. It's the work, the spirit of the anti-Messiah. To use it in New Testament terms, the, the spirit of anti-Christ. Therefore, David heard about it by God's grace. And notice he went down to the stronghold, verse 18. We don't know what stronghold it was. Maybe it was in Jerusalem, in that place that he had conquered. But it would be easy for us as the people of God, it would have been easy for them, it would have been easy for David to, to be frustrated by these perennial foes. They're the gift that keeps on giving. But if we think about it, it should cause us to be astonished at the preserving care of the Lord. 
Because for seven years, Israel has been divided, and a house divided cannot stand. A house divided is ineffective in carrying out the mission and defending itself from perpetrators. But all of a sudden, they show up after the nation has been united under David. And so it appears that God has, by his common grace, restrained them in Israel's most vulnerable time. Indeed, if they had attacked Israel like this, after Saul had been killed, and after the, the, the nation was at civil war with each other, they would have had their way with the people of God. This is common grace. But they're not awakened from their stupor until David was enthroned over a united kingdom. That is God's care for his people in spite of his people. That's mercy. In fact, I am convinced that same mercy is alive in every true church. Because if it wasn't, there would be splits more often than we see. Now David is in this position to face these wicked foes because at this point, yet God has evidently removed his restraint and permitted this attack. And they, they clearly want to attack before David gains traction as king because there's so much at stake for them. Once David gains traction as king, all the land that they have won through their battles would be lost. So what does a leader do, though, when, when faced with this kind of, of chaos? This is such a great example for us all. Well, David did what he always does. That brings us to Act 1, Scene 2. What David did as the enthroned king. Notice in verse 19. David inquired of the Lord. I love that. When struggles and stresses drive you to the face of God, what the reformers called uh, Coram Deo, before the face of God, as painful as it might be, it's a grace. And these Philistines have driven David to the Lord. David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? He's asking for direction. Will you give them into my hand? Here he is asking for success. He had done this on, on many occasions. You, we saw in chapter 29 of 1 Samuel when he didn't. And things went chaotic. But this is the pattern of David's life. Stresses come, he goes to the face of God. Now, how did David consult the Lord? Probably through the priest in the Urim and the Thummim, on the ephod. We know that a, only a small percentage of the Bible had been written at that point. Keep that in mind. And it wouldn't have been easy to consult the scriptures that had been penned because likely the few scrolls that existed would have been kept safe at some central locale. And this is one reason I think that the Lord gave the temporary provision of the Urim and the Thummim. But today, how do we inquire of the Lord? 
We have a completed canon. We have a completed Bible. God has spoken to us in these last days by his son. And so our first step in making wise decisions in the midst of chaos or any other kind of decision you need to make is to make sure you know what God has already said on the matter. And maybe we would read the scriptures more. Maybe we would pray more, inquire of the Lord more, if we really believed deep down that the Lord shepherds his people who inquire of him. Well, we certainly see it here in verse 19. Notice, the Lord said to David, go up. For I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And so the Lord responded favorably to David's prayer. Notice verse 20. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. So we see the Lord's power here by this fivefold use of the same root. And you can see it in this one verse, Baal Perazim, broken through, breaking flood, Baal Perazim. They all have that same root. Baal Perazim means Lord of the breakthrough. Hence the title of the sermon. Lord of the breakthrough. I find that so comforting. Our God is the Lord of the breakthrough. And this victory here shows that the Lord's promises are true and that he can bring them about in his time. He has the power to fulfill them. What was the promise with regard to the Philistines? Well, all the way back in chapter 3, verse 18, this is the Lord promised David by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the Philistines and from all their enemies. God is a promise-keeping God. And here David compares the Lord's work. Notice, broken through, a breaking flood to the way a tsunami flood breaks down everything in its path. But here, it's a good thing because it's, it's kind of a reversal on the rebellion, the nuclear rebellion that we see from God's enemies, the Philistines. It's a reverse tsunami, undoing the tsunami of sin and rebellion and what that has done to our world. And, and David ensured that this triumph would be remembered by naming the place Baal Perazim. He names the place the Lord of the Breakthrough. Now, you, you may be wondering, and I think this needs to be addressed, that the word Baal there seems troublesome. So we need to touch on that for a second. Because there was a false god named Baal. 
false worship. But understand this name is also a common noun that simply means master or Lord. And David is saying Yahweh proved himself to be the true Baal. You trust him. The Lord is the true God, but there are false gods. So, for instance, we use the name God. And we know when we use the name God, we mean the triune God, the true God, the true and living God. But false gods use that name as well. And so to use the name Baal here, David is not apostatizing. He's using a play on words. In a land that is filled with Baal worship, false worship, this is the true Baal, the true master, the true Lord. And, and David's point here is that I didn't win this battle. I wouldn't have had the capacity to do this. This is the Lord's doings. His point is similar to, to what the sons of Korah wrote in Psalm 44. For not in my bow do I trust, nor in my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and put to shame those who hate us. Isn't that beautiful? This is our God. He's the Lord of the breakthrough. He's the master of the breakthrough who accomplishes what we can't to reverse the tide of sin. That's what he's doing. He's in the business of doing. At the, the corporate level, it's our hope with regard to carrying out the Great Commission. Only God can open the, the necessary doors. Only God can provide the resources necessary to carry out the Great Commission to the ends of the earth. And at the, at the church level, only God can keep us unified. People with different opinions on things and different perspectives on things. People who are constantly running into people. That's us. Only God can keep us sufficiently unified because he's the Lord of the breakthrough. And at the family level, only the Lord of the breakthrough can fix the broken things. And if I were to ask you to raise your hand if there are broken things in your family, I would submit every hand would come up. Only the Lord of the breakthrough can make the sad things come untrue and reverse the sinful trajectory that you see with your sons, that you see with your daughters, that you might see with your marriage. But he's the Lord of the breakthrough. This is very hopeful. And the Lord of the breakthrough doesn't just flex his muscles to flex. He's in the business of reversing the tsunami of sin. That is what he's come to do. And I love how the text conveys just how comprehensive this victory was. Verse 21. And the Philistines left their idols there. I love that. And David and his men carried them away. It was common for ancient Near Eastern nations to bring their gods to the battlefield. That was the norm. Of course, we saw Israel do that in 1 Samuel 4 when their hearts were far from God. They took the Ark of the Covenant into battle because their assumption was 
that if they brought the ark into battle, it would force the Lord's hand to bring about victory for them. This was a way of manipulating God. Superstition. When anyone operates that way, and that tends to be our way, the concern isn't to glorify God. It isn't to seek him. It's not to please him. It's to control him. It's to use him. Such a person has little interest in faith. Such a person has an interest in making sure their agenda and their desires are fulfilled. But that's idolatry. That's not true worship. And verse 21 gives us a clear picture of the nature of idolatry. We need to see this because we're so prone. The reformer said, our hearts are idol factories. We're prone to this. When the idols did not deliver for the Philistines, and they never delivered, by the way, the idol worshipers reveal that they don't really love their idols. They're just using them. And they left them there. Once they saw their idols weren't coming through. You know, the Old Testament, we're going to see this tonight. You know, tonight's a big night because we're in Jeremiah 10. And, and the Old Testament has a lot of fun with the absurdity of idols. You know, for instance, in Psalm 115 and Psalm 135, uh, the idols have all of these human body parts. They have eyes, but they can't see. Uh, they have ears, uh, but they can't hear. Uh, they have mouths, but they can't speak. They, they can't reveal. History is the graveyard for the idols. Every idol perishes from the earth, even though our capacity to resurrect them and refurbish them under different names is uncanny. So, for example, remember when the Ark of the Covenant was captured and brought into the temple of Dagon, the mighty God of the Philistines. The next morning, they walk into his temple, and Dagon has fallen forward towards the Ark that represented the presence of God. Well, they set it back up. The next morning, they go in, and all you see is a trunk. His head, his hands, his feet have been cut off. And yet the Philistines still trusted him. That's the absurdity of idolatry. The idols never come through, and yet we continue to trust them. So that when Saul was killed, what did they do? They took Saul's corpse, the Philistines, and they brought, it says, to the house to carry the good news to the house of their gods. 1 Samuel 31, 9. But now in the valley of Rephaim, the very idols given credit for the Philistines' victory at Gilboa, they're left behind. This battle has reversed Gilboa. That's what it's done. But you could also say it's a reversal of the earlier battle in 1 Samuel when the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. 
because now the Philistine gods are captured by David. So it's gloriously appropriate that David's victory here involved taking away their idols. That is a picture of what's coming. That's a preview. That's a coming attraction. In fact, 1 Chronicles 14 tells us, verse 12, that David is going to burn these idols. He will burn them. This is the beginning of the end for the Philistines. We're going to still hear about them, but their head is crushed, so to speak. In principle, they have been defeated. But the end hasn't come yet. They're going to regroup. And that brings us to Act 2, Scene 1. What the Philistines did in response to the enthroned king. Scene 2. Look with me in verse 22. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. In spite of their defeat, they try again. And what does David do? David did what David does. That brings us to Act 2, Scene 2, what David did as the enthroned king. Look in verse 23. And when David inquired of the Lord, I love that. When David inquired of the Lord, you know, the habits of the heart are revealed in times of stress. The habits of the heart are revealed in times of stress. David's response this second time was the same. But this time, the Lord's response is somewhat different. Notice in the second part of verse 23. The Lord said, you shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you. I love that. To strike down the army of the Philistines. Whereas in the first attack, God saved by his raw power, this time he saves by strategy. Particularly, I think, noteworthy in this event is that David delayed his attack until, notice, the Lord had gone out in front of Israel. Earlier, the Israelites had asked to be like all the nations, and they wanted a king who would go before them. That was a rejection of the Lord. And here... It's the Lord who's going out because the sin tsunami is being reversed even with the people of God through the true king. We need to have eyes to see this because God is preparing us for someone even greater. Verse 25, and David did as the Lord commanded him. The obedient king and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. And so the results of David's dependency and his obedience were spectacular. The Lord, or David did what the Lord commanded him. But in time, the narrative is going to reveal 
the limitations and the inadequacies of David's achievements. But thankfully, the world's hopes do not depend on David, who served as a mere shadow. The substance will come in the fullness of time. David is just a shadow. The shadow reveals there's a substance that it's pointing to. And we know that a greater David came, and here's what he did. Here's how he defeated his enemies. The chief enemy, the devils, his head was crushed as Jesus took the wrath of God in the place of sinners like us. And his head was crushed because the throne of his dominion was bound up in our guilt. You take away the guilt and his dominion is reversed. And so the king came and he crushed the enemy of God once and for all. But here's what he also did. He didn't just defeat people like us who are very much like the Philistines. He subdued us to himself by that very gospel, by that cross, by that resurrection from the grave, by his ascension to the right hand of God, by the sending of his spirit, God came to reverse the tsunami of guilt and pollution in Philistine-like people like us. And so the enemies are actually defeated by being one to the true king. That's the first act. But there will be another act. Act two. He's going to return and he's going to finish what he started. Revelation 19. John, the revelator, is on the Isle of Patmos having been exiled by the, by the Caesar at that time. All he can see is chaos. But he's been redeemed. He's been subdued to this king. And he knows this king. And he knows he's a faithful and true king. And he knows he's coming back because he told him he was coming back. And God the Spirit inspiring the apostle John. And here's what John writes in Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Now, in a culture where conquering kings rode white horses in triumph, John is beholding the ultimate conquering king coming to reverse the sin tsunami. He says... The one sitting on it. And he's going to give a seven description of this, of this king. The one who is sitting on it is called faithful and true. I never saw him lie. John is saying. I was with him three years. Every promise was fulfilled. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. That's good news for God's people. Because he's coming to set things right. He's going to defeat the enemies of God definitively and consummately. His eyes are like a flame of fire. 
They see everything. They see the struggles you're going through. These eyes see perhaps unconfessed sin. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. This is a king, and he has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. Why would John say that? In the ancient Near East, when someone names something, they have authority and dominion over that thing. Adam named the animals. Authority, dominion. This being, this person, has a name that no one knows because he has the highest authority, the highest dominion. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now, what is that blood? Well, this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 63. You can see it cross-referenced in your Bible. So this is not the blood that he shed on the cross. That was in the first appearing where he subdued people like us to himself. This is a robe filled with the blood that comes from judgment on the unrighteous. John finds great hope in this, and we should as well. In the name by which he is called. Now, he has a name that no one knows, but we know this. He's called the Word of God. You can trust it. You can trust this Word because the inscripturated Word is centered on this incarnate Word. Now, I want you to notice, in the armies of heaven, who are the armies of heaven? That's believing people, saints, who have died, who have, who have gone to heaven, who are returning with him, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. That's not our practical uh, righteousness. Well, you better said it is, because those in heaven have been perfected. But fundamentally, it is imputed righteousness of this king, imputed to the believers, and now in heaven, it is inherent righteousness as well. White and pure. Notice, what, did, what role did they play in the victory? They followed him. They were following him on white horses. Restored kings and queens. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Didn't we read that and sing that in Psalm 2? He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings. He's a better king than David and Lord of Lords. This, the Lord of the breakthrough, by his king, by his Lord, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, renders his sweeping flood of judgments. And by doing so, he reverses the tsunami of sin, ushering in what no mere human king like David can achieve. This is a reversal of the sin tsunami. That only one who is both king of kings and lord of lords can accomplish. That's our hope. Now, why is this important to us? It just seems so far out there. Let me give you this and we'll go to the table. 
In 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul writes about that event. The second appearing, the return of Christ. And he says this, God, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. That's a word to every believer. Justice is coming to those who afflict you. In the context, it's unbelievers. And to grant, notice, relief to you. He's bringing relief. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever wanted, the greatest feeling in the world perhaps is relief. To grant relief to you who are afflicted. When the Lord Jesus is revealed in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance. Relief is on the way. 2 Samuel 5 gives us no commands to obey. And that's okay. Because the application is evident. It gives us a God to worship. It points to a king, to adore. It gives us hope, hope of coming relief when all the sad things have come untrue. When the, when the tsunami of sin and rebellion, the nuclear sin and rebellion that is epidemic in our world has been brought underneath the feet of this king. And that's what the table prepares us for as well. The table takes us back to what he has achieved as he promised. It reminds us that he's faithful and true. It allows us to commune with the one who sits enthroned even in this present age. For those of you that are visiting with us, we, we invite you to partake of the table with us as our family, upon a couple of conditions, you've been born again. And you recognize that Jesus alone is Savior and Lord. That he died on the cross, not just to pay for the penalty of your sins, but he, he died on the cross to set you free from the power of sin. 